there is a darker side to Christmas that we don't often hear about. So let's look at this because I think this is what Christmas really in its essence is about. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 1 starting in verse 18 and then going through to chapter 2. And we're just going to read the Christmas story together. Just gather around the fire and Grandpa Caleb's going to tell you the, the, Christmas, <clears throat> the Christmas story. So, so here, here's how it begins. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, here's what I want you to see particularly you men. This is the other WWJD. This is the what would Joseph do. Joseph is really, he's a a man among men. Here's the situation, okay? That Mary and Joseph are betrothed, which we don't use that word anymore, but that is somewhere between marriage and engaged. It's a legally binding engagement, such that if you were to break it, it's actually a divorce. So it says they're betrothed, but he's going to divorce her. It's a legally binding arrangement that would lead to marriage. And, and here's what happens. Joseph, he's, he's holding out for his wedding night. This is before they came together, right? He's an honorable man. He wants to honor God and do what pleases God. And he's He's holding out. He can't wait for his honeymoon. He can't wait to actually be married to Mary. And he's, he's been holding out. He's been waiting. He's been trying to be honoring to God. He's working on his honeymoon abs. And, and then Mary comes to him and says she's pregnant. Now, I want you to imagine that, men. What do you do in that moment? That your fiancé comes to you and says she's pregnant. This is a woman that you have been known for a long time. Your marriage has been planned for a long time. This is a very different culture. And this is not something acceptable. This is not something, I mean, it's never acceptable for your fiancé to be pregnant with someone else's child. But this is, I mean, even back then, any sort of uh, coming together before marriage was not something that anyone really did in that culture that was accepted. It was looked down upon. I mean, we, there's a there's a stigma nowadays on teen moms and that kind of thing, but especially back then. I mean, imagine that. And this is, so this brings shame on Joseph, but also, I mean, imagine the betrayal you would feel. Imagine the hurt you would feel. I mean, here's Mary still wearing her promise ring and coming and telling Joseph, I'm pregnant with someone else's child. And, and then, to make matters worse, from, from Joseph's perspective, she says, uh, it's from God. Right? I mean, like, sometimes people say the devil made me do it, but she trumps all of that and says, God made me do it. And what do you think when you're Joseph in that moment? Oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. No, I mean, he doesn't doesn't believe her. This is the woman that you have loved, that you do love, that has now, it feels like, lied to you, stabbed you in the back, betrayed you. This is your fiancé pregnant with someone else's child. I mean, think about that. Especially you men, think about what, what you would do in that moment. What do you do when you're sinned against? What do you do when someone is unjust to you? What do you do when someone brings shame upon your reputation? This is a small little town. Everyone's going to know about this. This is something that ever I means, don't know if you know this, kind of high, hard to hide that you're pregnant. Everyone's going to know, oh yeah, that was the girl that Joseph was engaged to. What do you do when people sin against you? Do you want to shame them? Do you want to let their reputation be made known, what the kind of person they're like is, gossip about them, post on Facebook about them, criticize them? What Joseph does is amazing. He, it says, being a just man, which doesn't mean he demands justice, which he could, but rather means that he has grace towards her and love towards her, is unwilling to put her to shame, but resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph doesn't believe her. He doesn't believe the story she's telling him. And he is going to divorce her, but he's not going to do what he could do. I mean, he, he, legally at this point, she could be put to death for this. Joseph has that right. 
But instead, Joseph is a just man, a caring man. And may we be a church of just men. That when sinned against, and just people in general, but when sinned against, when, it, when people even harm our reputation, that we don't lash out, that we don't, that we don't um, seek just our rights, but rather we seek grace towards another person. So here's what happens in this situation. This is, this is the, the setting that takes place. And then what happens next? But, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so here's, here's where it gets exciting, okay? My favorite movie of all time is the Justin Bieber movie. No, I'm just kidding. It's the, the Lord of the Rings, okay? It's the, the best movie ever. And um, many movies have this theme. The, the Lord of the Rings has this theme, but The Matrix has it, Star Wars has it, Harry Potter has it, The Lion King has it. I mean, many movies have a theme of this prophesied king, this hero or this king especially that will return. There's a prophecy that's made about this person that will come, this king that will come and set all things right, that will, that will bring justice where there's currently injustice, that will bring peace where there is war and destruction, that will, that will bring prosperity where there is sadness and sorrow, that will, that will set everything right that's supposed to be right. And, and this angel mentions and the narrator mentions this prophecy that's made about this king that will return. And Israel was waiting for this king to return. They were waiting for this Messiah to come, to set all things right, to bring peace and prosperity and to bring justice. So this is what they've been waiting for. And what the angel announces is that the prophecy is now coming. The child is born. The prophesied child is here. That the awaited king, the one that will make all things as they are supposed to be, is here. So this is exciting. This is what most great movies have this theme of the prophesied one that will come. And and the angel gives this child a name and the narrator references the prophecy that they shall call his name Emmanuel. So there's, there's two names given to this prophesied king. There's two names given to this child that is to be born. There's two names given, and one says what he does, and one says who he is. So the first name that is given, the first name that's given is Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is what the, the name Jesus, it means God saves. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. That's what the name means. And this was a common name, actually, because people in expectation, in hope that God would save, that God would redeem, would sometimes name their kids this, not to say that this is the Messiah, but just in expectation that God would do this. And the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So what are, what are we talking about when we talk about that? What, is, what, is that, what does the angel mean when he says he will save his people from their sins. What does it mean when Jesus, of, of what his whole identity as a person is, the, the actions that he does, this describes what Jesus does, what his purpose in life is, what his mission is, that he's going to save. What are we talking about when we say that? Well, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, what happened is that God creates man and woman, And they sin against God, and they turn their own way and do their own thing. And immediately, when sin enters into that point, as the devil tempted Adam and Eve to to turn away from God, and they chose to do that, what happens is immediately, when that happens, God makes a promise. This is very interesting, because this is the first, this is called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel. And here's what God said. 
to Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what this says is that an offspring is going to come from a woman, which is rare to use that kind of language. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, there's genealogies, but it's all traced through the father. This person is the father of this person, is the father of this person, is the father of this person. But here, God says, there will be an offspring from a woman, which isn't absolutely clear, but it's a hint that there will be something unique, a virgin birth, perhaps. And that what will happen is this, this child will be born and he will, he will be struck on the heel by Satan. He'll be injured, but not completely defeated. And yet, he will crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat the enemy. This was the first time. And then as this prophecy gets carried through the entire Old Testament, expectantly waiting for a Savior, expectantly waiting for someone to come that would save them. So we all know, we all know that we need salvation of some sort. When you look at the world, we know something is not quite right. We know we need saving. And whether that's on our individual life or if you just look at kind of the grand scope of life in general, we know we need saving. But we often look to politics or more education or more money or more programs or more laws. I mean, different things that we look at Because we think that something other than sin is the problem. So we look to something other than Jesus as the salvation. But we all know we need saving. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, if you look at the world, you can sense something's wrong and something needs to be set right. We know that we need saving. So what does it mean that he will save us from our sin? Well, first it means that he will set right the broken world that has been affected by sin. So all you have to do is look in your newsfeed or read the newspaper, see things, school shootings or, or whatever it might be, that you can see that the world is a broken place and that there are effects of sin everywhere. The interpersonal relationships are affected by sin, that creation itself, the Bible teaches, is under a curse. So it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. That our relationships with even our friends or our spouses or our parents or our families, that the world is affected by sin. The world is broken, and to be saved from our sin first means that God is going to set right all the broken effects of sin in this world. But what it also means when he says he will save his people from their sins, what that means is that our fundamental problem is sin. The greatest problem we have is sin. I want you to think about that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your fundamental problem is sin? I mean, when we think about our lives and the things that are wrong in our lives, do we think about our schedules or our jobs or our families or our coworkers or our situations or our tiredness or our busyness? Or do you believe that your fundamental problem, that the thing that most affects you in life, is sin. It's not that those other things don't matter, but do you believe that? Do you believe that what you most need saving from is sin? See, to say that he will save his people from their sins puts that front and center. It puts that right up in our face that our biggest problem is our sin. And it's, he will save his people from their sin, which is interesting. Because it's not, that doesn't envision people in captivity that, have, that are victims. It envisions people that have made choices that are self-enslaving. He will save his people from their own sins. So sin enslaves you. Your attitudes and your actions and your choices. We, we think we just want to be these free beings that freely choose, and we choose this and we choose this and we choose that, and we just are free to govern our own lives. And yet, what happens is we actually become enslaved to our own choices. So we get stuck in habitual attitudes, or we get stuck in habitual patterns of action, or we get stuck. What we once freely chose actually now becomes our master. That sin, maybe in a moment, might bring you pleasure. Sin, maybe in a moment, might bring you even a degree of happiness and joy. 
But long term, what sin does is enslave us such that we need rescuing. So for, for the angel to announce that his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, first is to say that the world is broken and he will redeem all the effects of sin on this world. It's to say that sin is the problem front and center in your life and that we self-select, that we self-choose sin. And what it also says is that he is the Savior. That he is the Savior. He will save his people from their sins. That Jesus will be the Savior. See, the gospel is that Jesus will be the Savior. Sometimes you may see on BuzzFeed or Facebook, people post things like um, 20 photos that will restore your faith in humanity. You've seen those types of things? And your faith should not be in humanity. Your faith should not be in the quality of humans around you. Your faith should not be in yourself It doesn't matter how many little pictures show people buying each other's Starbucks in line for hours, and it went on for hours and hours. Doesn't that restore your faith in humanity? No, we need a Savior. So we need something outside of ourselves. Humans can't be the ones that fix the problem because we are the problem. So we need a Savior from outside of ourselves. And it's not going to be one of us. It's not going to be a human. It's going to be a Savior that comes into this world. So to say that he will save his people from their sins means that we need a savior. That should humble us. It should make us see, wow, we we can't fix everything that's wrong. We can't be the ones that make everything return to how it's supposed to be. But that we need a savior outside of ourselves, which is really good news. It's really good news. If Jesus is the savior and not you, that's good on so many levels. It's good because the relationships around you, that you see the effects of sin, that you see the brokenness, that you see the pain, it doesn't mean you have no uh, response to be able to love those people and serve those people, but it does mean that you have a liberation to know you're not the Savior, that you can't set all things right, that the brokenness that you see around you, the sin you see around you, you are not the Savior. You can love people, you can serve people, but you are not the Savior. And what it also means for you personally, see, I know many people, even if you've been a Christian for a long, 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 long time, your sin burdens you deeply. That when you look at sin, you hate it, which is a good thing, but you hate it to an extent where you look at it and are just like, ah, I just hate that I'm a sinner. And you, 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 you hate it so much because you feel that you need to save yourself from it, but no, you can't. And you see it and hate it. Maybe it's past sin or current sin. And you don't believe that there's a Savior that has dealt with it. It's really good news that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. I mean, do you ever feel like, man, I'm such a sinner? Okay, good. Let that truth sink in and then come to hear the good news that Jesus came to save his people from their sin. The more that you feel you're a sinner, the more that should drive you to see that Jesus is the Savior of sinners instead of just feeling a shame or feeling a guilt over that. Let it drive you to Jesus who is the Savior of sinners. So the first thing that the angel says, the first name given to this promised king is that his name is Jesus, describes what he does, which is that he is the Savior. He is the Savior. And secondly, secondly, who he is, what he does is save, and who he is is Emmanuel, God with us. See, who, who is this king? Who is this king that has a right to save? Who is this king that, that has a right to, to save people from their sins? Is he a good teacher? Is he a prophet? Is he an enlightened spiritual thinker? Is he a messenger from God? Yes, he is. He is all those, but he is more. He is God with us. This name, Emmanuel, and we sing that song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. That Just that name, do you know that that's who Jesus is? God with us. This means so many things, but here's what it means first. It means that it takes God to save us. It takes God to save us. That the problem in our life is so bad. See, do you look at your sin and think it's small? It took God to come to this earth. To save us from sin. Sin is something that God takes seriously such that it takes God 
to save us. That it took Jesus being both God and man in order to save us. Man, because only man could pay the debt, because man owes a debt to God for our sins. But God, because must live a perfect life and must, must be able to give us his righteousness. That to say that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, shows us that sin is serious and took God to save us. It also shows us, contrary to every other religion, that God comes down to us. That he doesn't say, work your way up to me. He doesn't say, you have to earn this. He doesn't say, come, come to me, but rather he comes to us. Do You see how amazing that is, that God would come to us? That is contrary to everything else that would call us up to God, to work our ladder up to God, but instead God comes down to us. And what it means also is that God entered in to the brokenness. He entered into pain and suffering. You know how amazing that is compared to other religions, compared to other philosophies, that God with us. I mean, think about this context and this setting of that announcement and a people that were enslaved and a people that were oppressed and a people that longed for a savior, that this prophesied king would be named God is with us. God is with us. The same Jesus that this was is the same, if you believe in Jesus now, this is the Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus as one that is God with us? Where do you need to believe that right now even in your life? Is there brokenness and pain and suffering that you're going through? That you need to believe that Jesus is one that is God with us? Is there areas where you've lost all hope or that you feel alone? That you need to believe God is with us? Are there areas where you lack courage or you lack strength and you need to believe that Jesus is God with us? I mean, this God enters into brokenness. He enters into, I mean, I said the world is sinful and it's broken and it's horrible and it's under a curse and yet God enters into that. So whatever your mess is, whatever your struggle is, whatever your sorrow is, whatever your pain is, Is it not amazing that God is with us and that he enters into that? That's who Jesus is. That what he does is save and who he is is God with us. So what's the response then? How do do we respond? How, How did people respond to this amazing announcement? This amazing fact of of who Jesus is? Here's what happens next. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, men, this is just a little subtext of the sermon here to look at Joseph's life. When he hears God speak, what does he do? He obeys. He just does it. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't try to memorize it. He doesn't try to study it. He just does it. He hears God speak, and he goes, okay, and he does what he says. Are you responsive to God, men? When you hear God speak, when you read the Bible, when you hear a sermon, when you, when you hear God's word, do you respond? You take time and you think about it and you ponder it and you study it, or do you respond and do what God says? So here's what happens. Jesus is born. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, You're going to see two different ways that people respond to this prophesied king. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So these wise men see this star and they've known this prophecy and they follow it and they come and they say, where's, where's the one that's the king of the Jews? Expecting that everyone would be excited about this, that everyone would be happy about this. And Herod, who's the current king there, is troubled. All Jerusalem with him is troubled. And the chief priests and the scribes, the religious people, they are troubled And how many wise men did it say there were, by the way? doesn't say, just so you know. So that song we sing, 
They made it up. Okay. Um, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. So, he, so Herod gathers everybody together and says, where is it that this Christ is supposed to be born? What's the prophecy say? And he gathers everybody. They study the Old Testament and they find some verses and they see where it is that the Christ is supposed to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. So he grabs these people that were excited about this king being born. So Herod gathers the wise men together secretly and found and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So he says, Okay, wise men, I want you to go find this guy. Go search for him so I can worship him. He was lying, we know. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So they see the star. They, they see where baby Jesus is now. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So an angel warns them, don't go tell Herod where this baby is. Instead, go on your way. So they move on. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So the angel appears to Joseph again. He says, look, this Herod, this king, he wants to kill, he wants to destroy Jesus. So you need to take your family and pack up and leave. and Go to Egypt and hang out there until I tell you otherwise. So he rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then... Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod wants Jesus dead. The wise men didn't tell him where he was, so he goes to such great lengths to kill anyone in the time frame when the wise men said they saw the star. Two years and under. All baby boys. He goes on a rampage to destroy any possibility of this king of Israel that was prophesied. So we see in this passage Two different responses, right? There's this prophesied king. There's this prophesied king. And there's two different responses to this king. The first, we'll just call it the Herod response. And the first response is this. It's to replace him as king and savior. See, Herod hears the news and he doesn't disagree with it. We're not told that he disagrees with it. His his scribes and, and the priests, they tell him, yes, here's what it says and He's the Christ and he's the king. And he hears this good news and he treats it as bad news. See, the first response to hearing that Jesus is king, that Jesus is savior, that Jesus is the prophesied one that has come, that he is God with us. The first response to that that we see, and this is the dark side of Christmas. This is the bloody side of Christmas that we see. That Herod's response to that is to hear good news And to treat it like bad news. How often in your life do you hear good news and treat it like bad news? When it's about Jesus. When you hear Jesus is king of your life. Does that sound good to you? Or does that irk you a little bit? Does that rise up a spirit of rebellion in you a little bit? 
does that make you want to hang on and control your own life? When you hear Jesus is the king of your life, when you hear that Jesus wants to save you from your sin, does that sound good to you or do you want to protect your sin? Do you want to hold on to your sin? Does it sound like he's trying to take something away from you? When you hear that God is with us, does that sound good to you or does it sound kind of creepy? Like, oh man, he's always watching everything I do and he's around me all the time. The first response is to to replace Jesus as king and not want him to be king, to hear good news and to treat it like bad news. And here's ways that that we do this. We do this by, by not confessing our sin. I mean, when, when you're confronted with sin in your life, do you want to confess that or do you want to hang on to it? See, if you don't want to see Jesus as king, then you want to hang on to your sin. Or you want to hide it from other people because you don't want, you don't want to be seen as someone that needs a savior. Instead, you want to feel like and seem like you have it all together. So we don't confess sin. We, we reject Jesus as king. Or we have false confession like Herod. What's interesting there is you see Herod and he's like, sweet, bring this king to me so I can worship him. And outward in front of other people, he, he has a false confession where he says, this is great. I love Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. I'm glad he's the king. Do you have false confession in front of other people, but in your heart, the secret desires in your own heart are to hold on to your own life, to be the king in your own life, to resist and reject and replace Jesus as king. Another way we do this is by not obeying him as king. See, essentially what happened here is that Herod wanted to be king. He hears that Jesus is the king. He hears that. Herod's already king. I mean, Herod's the king right now. And now he's told Hey, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod's like, uh, I'm the king of the Jews. But no, 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 no. There's this prophesied king that's the savior, that's Emmanuel, that's God with us. And Herod hears that. He doesn't want to give up being king. And we can have the Herod response in our own life by not obeying Jesus as king and wanting to be king in your own life. We do this through our life choices. I mean, think about this with me. In your life, in your life, do you govern? I mean, think on the grand scale. Do you govern your life? Do you live your life with the first acknowledgement, Jesus is king? I want to live my whole life as if Jesus is king. Elsewhere in this book, Matthew's book, Jesus says the words, Seek first his kingdom and righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Is that first in your life? The first governing factor in your life is that Jesus is king and I want to live my whole life governed under him. Is that how you base your life choices? Is that the first starting point? Or is it essentially, I'm king, I want to govern my life, and as the governor and king of my life, I rule it important to have Jesus be a part of that? Or is your first, Jesus is king. Jesus, command me. Jesus, speak to me. Jesus, govern me. Jesus, rule me. See, it's good news that Jesus is king. But do you feel that? Or does it feel like bad news that he's king? Does it feel like he's trying to take you off your throne? That's how Herod felt. In our life choices, do you start with Jesus is king? In your moral choices, do you start with Jesus is king? When you think about your moral choices every day, whatever that is, whether it's how you spend your money, how you spend your time, whether it's sexuality, whether it's whatever it might be, is your first thought, is your governing thought, is your pattern of thought, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. I listen to what Jesus says. Do you have that desire in your heart? When you think about what's right and wrong, do you, do you come before Jesus and go, Jesus, you're king. Because you're king, I want to I do what you say. Or is your first thought, what do my friends think? Or what do these magazines say? Or what does culture teach me? Or what opinions sound good to me? Or is your first thought, Jesus is king. Jesus, you are king. Govern my life because you're a good king. Is that your first thought? See, if you, 
If you want to replace Jesus as king and be your own king, like Herod did, then your life choices will start with you as king, not Jesus as king. Your moral choices will start with you as king, not Jesus as king. And when you're confronted, when someone confronts you, when a loving friend, when a sermon, when the Bible, when the Holy Spirit confronts you, you will get defensive because you feel as king that some peasant is confronting your laws that you have chosen to govern the land. I mean, if a peasant were to walk up to a king and say, King, I think your choices are wrong, the king would laugh and be like, are you kidding me? I'm the king. This is my life. I govern it. This is my land. I govern it. When you're confronted, is that your posture? Do you feel as if someone is confronting a king? Or do you go, thank you. Thank you for helping me to live under the true king, Jesus. I want to live my life under the true king, Jesus. And so I'm glad that you pointed out ways in which I'm not living under the true King Jesus. I know that sounds almost like, who would respond like that? But doesn't that just show us our hearts? When we want to replace Jesus as King, we don't want to be confronted. And when we want to replace Jesus as King, as a King, we want glory. Kings want their glory. They want people to bow down to them. They want people to kiss their ring. They want people to acknowledge them. They sit on a throne. They, they want people to see that. How often... Are you thinking about your glory? And you probably never think those words, hmm, how is my glory doing today? But let's say this. If you're a Christian, you know you're supposed to love people. So you do nice things for people. You do kind things for people. Are you waiting for that thanks? Are you waiting for that you're such a nice person You're such a kind person. You're such a, all of that is giving glory. And I'm not saying we shouldn't thank people. We should. But I'm talking about your heart when that's happening. Is that what you're desiring is your glory, your applause, your praise as king? Or would it make you happy if you did something loving for someone and they said, man, that is so cool that Jesus is so great that he inspires you to do this. Would that make you as content as if they had said to you, You are the nicest person. You are the kindest person. You are the most compassionate person. You are the... Or think about how often are you wanting your name to be known, to be recognized, to be respected. I'm not talking about famous, but I'm talking about how often is it that you want people to really respect you. That's that's a kingly posture, is it not? That's something that a king desires. Or do you want... Is your, is your overarching concern that you want people to see Jesus? Is your overarching concern through your actions, through your deeds, through your life, that you want people to see how great Jesus is? That you want them to see how good he is? Or are you content if it stops at you? See, we're supposed to be funnels that people see us and then it reflects up to who God is. But are you content if it stops at you? Are you happy if it stops at you? That's a kingly posture. And we reject Jesus as king. We replace Jesus as king by doing those things. Or we reject him as savior by trying to be our own savior. And I was thinking about this because I've said something like this before that we um, try to be our own savior. And, And I think sometimes that that can gloss over because maybe you hear that and go, I'm not trying to be my own savior if you think about that in terms of getting yourself out of hell or things like that. But, but think about it this way. What is it that you look at and say, this is how I know I'm a good person? Or what is it that you look at that you when, you, when you don't do it, you feel bad about yourself. You feel like a bad person when you don't do it or when you do something. When you look at certain things in your life and you go, yeah, when I do that, I feel like I'm a good person. I feel like I'm a good spouse. I feel like I'm a good wife, a good mom, a good dad, a good husband, a good friend, a good child, a good parent. When you do these things, I feel like I'm, I'm good. Those are the things that we can look to then to be our saviors. So we know that something is wrong with us. And we can look to those things and say, if I do that, I'm good. If I do that, I have goodness which is a very similar way to say that you are saved, that you're okay. And 
Therefore, that doesn't mean don't do good things. It doesn't mean that. But we can look at those things as what our Savior is. And so then what happens is if we do them, we feel great. But then if we don't do them, we feel horrible. And we feel crushed. And because we don't feel saved anymore. We don't feel good anymore. But are you looking to Jesus as the one that saves? As the one that gives you the worth? That gives you the value? That makes you okay? That, that puts a declaration of goodness over you? Or do you look to other things? And what are those things? Do you know what those things are in your life? Do you know what those things are that when you do them, you feel, I'm a good person? And when you don't do them, you feel, I am a bad person or a lacking person? So we were watching Jingle All the Way. Probably the best Christmas movie ever, right? Whatever happened to Sinbad, by the way? What? I mean, seriously. That guy's hilarious. Sick world we live in. Sick people. His favorite line. And it fits with the sermon. So, um, in that, in one of the opening scenes, you got Arnold Schwarzenegger, okay, in his starring role. And what happens is he misses his son's karate class. Um, or it wasn't karate class. It was he was trying to earn the, the belt. And he misses it. He misses the class. So he gets home. And uh, any of you watched this already this season? You'll, you know what I'm talking about? No? Just me? Okay. That's cool. Um, you can watch your lame Christmas movies. You've got to watch a movie with Arnold and Sinbad. That's how you know it's Christmas. So he, see, he, gets, uh, he gets home, okay? And, he, and his son is mad. His son's upset with him. His son is hurt. His feelings are hurt. And his son is being mean to his dad. And his dad is trying to make him, Arnold's trying to make him laugh. And he's trying to, Jamie, hey. And he's trying, that's my best Arnold impression. He's trying to, I'll never do that again, I promise. He's trying to make him laugh. He's trying to cheer him up. He's trying to do different things. And the kid's just not having it, right? And so finally, Arnold comes up to him and he kneels down and he looks at him and he says, hey, what if I do something really special to make it up to you? What if I do something to make it up to you? And Jamie's like, really? What's it going to be? And what do you want? And then it's Turbo Man, et cetera, et cetera. But what's really interesting in that, and was watching this, Arnold is trying to be his own savior. It's what can I do to make it up to you? He doesn't ever say to Jamie, Jamie, I'm sorry to you that I'm a bad father and that I promised you I'd be there and I wasn't. Will you forgive me of my sins for doing that? Jamie, or just even, will you forgive me? I mean, it's not a Christian movie, but just, Jamie, I'm sorry that I did these things and I'm not a good dad. Will you forgive me? No. See, if he viewed sin as the problem, then he would go to forgiveness. But instead, it's, I will be my own savior. He says, Jamie, let me make it up to you. I did these bad things. Being a good dad, that's what salvation is. I was a bad dad. So now I must be a good dad, an extra good dad, to make up for it. So my dad points drop down to negative 50, so I need to be an extra good dad to bring it up to positive 50. That is the essence of being your own savior, that you think about, how can I make something up? And it's not that we never restore things that we've done wrong. If you steal something, yes, give it back. But, but that attitude is, if I do bad things, if I'm not the kind of good person that I desire to be, I just need to put more effort into being the good person I desire to be. We don't look to Jesus to save us from our sin. We look to ourselves to be our own savior, to atone for our own sin. What is it that makes you feel like a good person? That can be the tendency of what you look to, to save yourself. I also just want to say this real quick, even thinking about how we reject Jesus as king or replace Jesus as king. In your life, back to the title of Jesus as God is with us. Emmanuel means God with us. So what I just was talking about is a replacement for him as savior. But what about that idea of God is with us? So in the middle of your suffering or in the middle of your brokenness or in the middle of your pain, what we're supposed to do is see God is with us and see Jesus. But what if you were to replace that? What if you were to scratch out God and put something else there? What is that for you? Food is with us. Think about in the middle of your brokenness or in the middle of your suffering, or in the middle of your pain, or in the middle of when things aren't going well, or in the middle of things are hurting. What goes in that blank for you if you cross out God? TV is with us. Talking to my mom is with us. Exercise is with us. 
alcohol is with us. I mean, what is it for you? Distraction is with us. What, what is it for you when you're suffering that instead of looking at Jesus as God is with us, you go to something else? You feel that you need something with you in the middle of that. Anytime we're in the middle of suffering and pain, we feel we need something with us. What is it instead of Jesus sometimes for you? That's a helpful thing to think about, a way that we have the Herod response of rejecting Jesus as Savior, rejecting him as king, replacing him as king. See, the dark side of Christmas, the bloody side of Christmas is that our sin is so bad. Our sin is so bad that God had to die for it. And we so violently oppose his salvation. See, I I doubt any of you are out killing babies, but that is the spirit of rejection that is within us, that we so violently oppose Jesus as king. We so violently resist Jesus as Savior. Herod went and killed a bunch of babies. That's how that manifested in his life. But how does it manifest in your life? Christmas, the dark side of Christmas. It's not just this cute little cuddly baby that was born. It's this cute little cuddly baby that was born to save us from sin. The very sin that we have in our hearts where we don't even like to hear about him being king. That's the sin that Jesus came. That's what Christmas is about. Christmas is bloody. It's that Jesus was born in blood. That Jesus died in blood to save us from our sin. And that we violently resist him to the extent of blood. I want you even to think about this. Every Christmas, every Christmas we have red. We have red flowers and we have red stockings and we put We wear red clothes and there's red lights and there's red tree skirts and there's red red all over the place on Christmas. And from this Christmas forward, I want you to see, every time you see red, to think of blood. To think that the true story of Christmas is not just, yay, baby Jesus was born. But it's that he came to save us from sins. And to the end that he died in blood on a cross to pay for those sins. And that our heart responds as illustrated in Herod is a violent, bloody resistance to him as king. That that's how that comes out. I want you to think about that when you see red in Christmas and be reminded that Christmas is filled with blood. That it's filled with blood. And that can be good news or it can be bad news for us. So that's the first response to Jesus. That's the first response. What's... What's the proper response? Well, the aptly named wise men response is to receive him. It's to receive him. See, the wise men, it says, with great joy came before him. And that they bowed down before him and they worshipped him. That they humbled themselves before him. See, to see Jesus as king, the proper response in our hearts is to have joy. I mean, when you hear, again, when you hear Jesus is king, that should produce great joy in us because he's a good king and we don't have to be king. When you hear he's savior and he will save us from our sins, instead of wanting to hold on to our sins, it should make us feel free and liberated that he has rescued us from our sins. The wise men have a response of joy. They have a response of humility. They have a response of worship. Because they see him for who he is. The, the reason that we would have a false response to Jesus is because we think we'd be a better king. We think we'd be a better savior. We think we'd be a better, we think there's better versions of things that are with us. But the wise men see him for who he really is. They see him as a good king, as a savior. That's for their good, that's for their joy. And they rejoice in that and they worship him and they bow before him. And what's interesting is Matthew, this book is written by Matthew the same way that he begins his book, talking about Jesus, is how he ends the book. See, Matthew shows us this child, this prophesied king. He shows us what he does, Jesus saves. And he shows us who he is, God with us. And that same truth about Jesus carries over into our life today. And Matthew ends the book like this. And you'll see both of those things in here. 
And Jesus came and said to them, this is the very last part of Matthew's book, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the same Jesus that was born. The same Jesus that was born is the one that saves. That's what baptism is. That he saves. That's what he's still doing today. That he's with us even as we go with him on mission that he's still the king that we obey, that that's still who he is today, that the way we respond now today to who Jesus is as the Savior, as God with us, is to obey him, to participate with him in his, in, in being able to tell people about him so that they are saved, and to know God is with me so that there's boldness, so that there's courage. So, Remember that this is who Jesus is this Christmas and all Christmases forever. That Jesus is Savior, that He is God with us. And when you see red, remember. Remember that Christmas is bloody. That it's bloody. That's the dark side of Christmas, but it's the good news of Christmas also. And that's what we remember when we come to communion too, right? We remember that bloody side of Christmas, that dark side of Christmas. We remember that Jesus shed his blood for us and broke his body for us, that this little baby was born to be a savior, was born to be king. And that the way he would save his people from their sins is through the cross. That on the cross, Jesus died and took our sins on himself. And he forgives us. And then he raises to new life and gives us life in him, with him, forever. That he wants to rescue us and free us from our sins. That's who Jesus is. That's who we get to worship. And even tonight, the proper response is the wise men response. It's to see him as king and worship him. 